You're listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonopussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at Clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone willy or clone pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you, and they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone willy or clone a pussy kit right now, head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD, that's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember, this is a deal that cannot be cloned. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for clicking on this brand new Saturday edition of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your disabled daddy, Andrew Gerza. Let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get this show started, everyone. Just a little quick housekeeping note. As you heard last week, my new series, Cripology will be dropping on August 30th at 10 a.m. on this feed. So excited to share this with you. I haven't even recorded it yet, but I have a really cool idea for the first episode, and I want to tell you all about it. So for the first episode, I'm going to look at the history of how disabled people were considered fairies or demons or changelings and how... And how all that went down and some some stories around changelings and disability and all that stuff. And I'm really excited to put this first episode out there. And I just wanted to let you know. So the first episode will deal with how disability was depicted when we talked about changelings and fairies and all that stuff. Because that happened in a lot of disability history. And I wanted to explore that. So we're going to in our very first episode. So stay tuned for that. And some of you have reached out on socials and said you wanted to help with cryptology and you wanted to uh, give me ideas for history topics that I could put in this series. And if you want to do that, you can also email us at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com and just say, just use the subject line 
Cryptology and let me know some things that I could do some research on and you can you can let me know what kind of episodes for this series you want me to make. So stay tuned for that friends. It'll be it's super exciting. But now let's get on to today's show and first let's get on to our Patreon peeps for today. So first things first, I gotta give a shout out to the Patreon peeps that keep the bright light shining on this show. And the Patreon shout out today goes to a former guest. You heard her on our Art History episode recently. Josephine from Belgium gave ten dollars and eight sorry, ten euros and eight cents. Ten she gave ten euros a year. And I'm really glad that that she and they were able to um, donate. Thank you so much, Josephine. So your pun is Josephine Cornette. You make it really cool to talk about art history and disability. My pun is really bad. Thank you for your pledge. Thank you. Thank you. Sometimes I can't. I don't get cool. Things like that, and so there we go. But Josephine, thank you so much for your pledge. means so much. And if you want to pledge like Josephine, you can do it one of three ways. You can pledge a dollar amount, which will give you a, a shout-out on the show, and you'll get the show one day early. You can pledge $5, which will give you the option to get the show one day early, a shout-out, and to build a show with me. And if you want to build a show with me, you have to email us at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com and let me know what kind of show you want to do um, or you can pledge a yearly amount if that works for your budget and um, then the, it, all of it helps the show if you can't donate financially you can always leave us a review wherever you pod tell your friends listen to the show spread the show around do all those things and that will immensely help the show too but now, let's get to today's show. On the show today, I sit down with my friend and longtime colleague in the sex education world, my friend Dr. Nadine Thornhill, and we talk about her experiences being a black sex educator, but also being a black woman navigating her experiences of attention deficit disorder and what that mean, meant for her in her youth and as a as a parent and as just a black person what it means to have ADHD so we talk a lot about that it was really really important to hear this because I don't think we hear a lot about black people with ADHD and with neurodivergences like that so it was really really important for me to sit down with Dr. Nadine Thornhill she runs a fantastic YouTube channel where she makes sex education, digestible, accessible, and fun. And I loved sitting down with her and having this conversation. She talks about how she was pushed in her world before being diagnosed with ADHD to feel like she had to be the perfect black person. And there was so much to unpack there. And I loved sitting down with her and and having this chat and having discussions about disability, race, identity, so many things go on here, and I hope you enjoy the interview with my friend, sex educator, Dr. Nadine Thornhill, right now on Disability After Dark.
Dr. Nadine Thornhill, hello. How are you? Oh, it's so nice to finally see to finally be looking in your in your eye holes. We've been <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I love that terminology. I'm gonna refer to them as eye holes from now on. Do it. Awesome. Do it. Yes, yeah, yeah, do it. It's so nice to see you on the Zoom. It's so nice to see you. I know it's been so long, man. It's been two summers. Basically. Jeez. We nice. we did some video stuff for your YouTube channels like 2019 summer. Oh, that was because that was the summer that our wonderful premiere took office. So that was 2018. What has it um, been that freaking long? We gotta it's been that long. Okay, well, um, since all this went down, we have to fix things. We have to yeah. like get together when when it's safe to be in a room again. I agree, like a hundred percent. Can I ask? Are you are you are you vaccinated? Or? I am vaccinated, and I. Me too. Me too. I, I got my two shots. I got my and everybody listening is like, "What's going on?" So, yeah, I was vaccinated uh, May eleventh, my second shot. Yay! So awesome. I'm just waiting for you know for it to feel a bit safer to do things before I start doing <laughs> stuff. But I'm back. Same, same. I just got my second shot last week. So I'm still Yay. in that. I'm still building my antibodies. Um, but yeah, in another week or so, I should be good to go. But like you, I'm, I'm waiting a little bit for, you know, the, the herd immunity to be a little bit more Yeah, robust. before the numbers here um, in Ontario, Canada are like, like not, they, I mean, they were, they were decent today, but you know. Yeah, we're getting there. It's but so I don't, I, I don't want to be impatient because like that that third wave and that like third lockdown was really just di- like that was a bit emotionally devastating for me so I'm like I don't want to get too overzealous too excited then... too, yeah 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 that is the joy you know and for everybody listening who's living in places where they have lockdowns you know the joy of this mm. thing we've been we've been doing it for almost two fucking years now wow yeah um, and it's a lot it's a lot so dr nadine thornhill i am so happy to have you you're my friend you and i could like friend chat for hours but for anybody who doesn't know who you are can you just introduce yourself a little bit and tell us who you are what you do sure um so as you said my name is dr nadine thornhill i am a sexuality educator based in toronto ontario canada uh just like andrew and I have been working in sex education for over 16 years now and my, yeah. And so a lot of my work has focused on um, providing education support and training for families, for teachers, you know, really helping people um, learn how to make conversations about sexuality and related topics part of their everyday conversations. And then more recently, since COVID hit, I've had um, the opportunity to start working with new and emerging sex educators and, you know, helping them both figure out, you know, where they want to go and what path they want to pursue within sex ed, and then helping them, you know, get started. Because as you know, there are so many different ways to approach this work. Um, and it's not a field like, you know, medicine or law where there's just one path towards yeah. becoming qualified and getting your career up and running. So, um, yeah, I've been doing that for the past, uh, still fairly recent. It hasn't been quite a year that I've been doing that, but I'm loving that as well. So I, I, that's just another form of like teaching people 
how to talk about sexuality. I'm just doing it with people who also want to be sex educators now. And I mean, what I love about the work that you do is you do it really with intention and you try to bring these big concepts into digestible little pieces, but also do it. You put, you have a YouTube channel that talks about this stuff very openly. You, you know, you do, you've done content that is really easy to, to understand that isn't scary. And that's not, that's really accessible, I think. Yeah. And I mean, that's probably the part of my job I love the most is figuring out ways to talk to people about, um, you know, these ideas related to sex that may seem really scary or overwhelming or shameful or embarrassing and figuring out, you know, how to present it in a way where maybe it just feels, you know, a little bit more chill, um, you know, and letting them know that a lot of these experiences, feelings, boundaries that, you know, they may have are quite common. Um, and even when they're not that, you know, most of the time it's still, it's okay. Um, and sort of helping them explore ways that they can feel okay about those things rather than, you know, getting mired in the, in the shame and the guilt and the fear and, and all of those like yucky emotions that are often not helpful yeah. uh, when it comes to sexuality. Yeah. And I mean, you make it like if, if people follow your YouTube channel, which you should, you should go on YouTube right now and type in Dr. Nadine Thornhill and follow all the things. Um, you know, I love how, again, how honest you are when you do it and how simple it is what you're talking about it's not it's not this big concept it's really little easy things that are easy to follow thank you um and it's, it's interesting because people often give me credit for that but the truth of the matter is I can't do it any other way like I I at a certain point in my life in my career I tried to sort of emulate these academic, they weren't just academic thinkers, but people who communicated, you know, using academic jargon and language, because there is a part of me that finds that really um, appealing. I think um, some of that language to me is, is very, you know, it's very elegant, elegant and eloquent. Um, and I love listening to it sometimes, but I, yeah. whenever I try to do it, I'm like, I can't, like, it's just it's like a disaster. Um, but I totally agree with you because I, you know, I used to sit in university lecture halls and hear my profs teach me and do these really big, fancy, like flowery language about whatever we were talking about. And I remember sitting in the lecture hall being like, I want to do that. That looks really cool. I can do that. So just like you, when I started doing sex education, I did the same thing. I was like, okay, I'm going to be really serious, going to be super buttoned up, but I'm going to talk about these concepts really seriously and not make it fun. And then what happens is you start doing it and you're like, oh, this isn't fun anymore. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and I think there are some people who are really well suited to taking on that sort of academic side of things and like, you know, all the best to them. But for me, I'm like, my body actually physically rejects it. Like doing that sort of, like you said, like buttoned up, really polished sort of presentation. Like I will start sweating um, in a way that I never sweat any other time. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like suddenly all my clothes feel itchy and like, I want to scratch things and I'm twitching. It was like, my body like hates it. Just it. like, yeah. stop doing it. Stop it. No. And I find with, with what I talk about around disability and sexuality, if I'm not hundred percent myself, the audience doesn't glean anything from what I'm saying. If I Same. 
try to bring you a very polished, a very academic number, number-based presentation, people are like, yeah, but tell me about you being in a wheelchair. What I want to know about that. Tell me, like, that's what you're here for, right? So why are we talking about that? And do you think part of that is because the the topics that we tend to talk about, you know, both sexuality and in your case, sexuality and disability, because they're topics that, you know, people, like the people we're teaching often feel very vulnerable about those sort of things. Do you think that, yeah, like maybe part of the reason that they respond well to the authenticity is because they need to feel a certain degree of vulnerability from us also in order to engage with the subject matter? Yeah, I think I think they want us to stay there. They're there to see us be humans. They're mm-hmm. not there to, to see us basically reread what we see in a lecture book. They want us to be our textbook rather. They want us to be the reason why we're there and the reason why they're sitting in this room is to see us bring humanity to the topic. Right, which I mean, I think you do like so beautifully is, you know, I feel like at the core of everything that you say and write, um, at least that I've seen and listened to is you're basically sort of reminding people that like, hey, folks with disabilities are human beings and let's talk about the humanity you know, of folks that we sometimes dismiss or we gloss over their humanity. And I think it's very difficult to ask people to sort of tap into their humanity if we're not willing to do the same thing. Do you feel that way as a, as a Black educator too? To like, how do, like, how do you do that as a Black educator? Same. And, and it's interesting because for a long time, I would sort of try to leave the racial part of my identity out of it. Um, and I feel like my work and my practice only become richer once I sort of realize like that that's ridiculous like or I shouldn't say ridiculous but that yeah that doesn't work like I you know sexuality is an integrated part of again our humanity so I'm like who I am as a racialized person is also integrated into my humanity and so it's integrated into my sexuality and I think people's um racial identity is of course it's going to influence their sexuality and so um yeah you know it's something that now I've become more comfortable talking about um and I'm just also more interested in exploring the ways that my racial identity affects things like my sexuality because for a long time um just to give people some context like I'm 45 years old so I grew up, you know, I was a teenager in the late 80s and 90s, and that was a time when there was very much this idea of colorblindness and the idea that, you know, if you were a racialized person, that the color of your skin didn't really have anything to do with who you were as a person. And that was seen as sort of the like correct progressive way to approach, you know, um, race, particularly if you were not white. Yeah. And so, I definitely internalized that and took that on. So I didn't spend a lot of time when I was a teenager and a young adult, when I was coming into my own sexuality, thinking about what it meant to be black and sexual. Like I just didn't think about it. Because your whole community and your whole generation was taught colorblindness is the way to go. Right, right. Like race is just kind of incidental. Like don't talk about it. Don't acknowledge it. We're all the same. And that's you know, that's the T. And so it's only been, you know, later in my life that I've started being like, well, 
no, being black is actually like a really important part of who I am. <laughs> it's a really big part of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, and I, yeah. I feel the same way when it comes to my disability. We, we in the disability community still hear, oh, I don't see your disability. I just see you. And it's like, well, but if you're going to see me, you need to see all of it. Like, because right, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I have no way to segue into the <laughs> into my next question. So I'm just going to dive right in. Yes, I love it. Um, so let me find out what the question is. Cause I don't know what I wrote down. The question is, so one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show, and we've been talking about having you on for like two years, but here we are. So one of the things you mentioned in the questionnaire to me was that you just two and a half years ago got diagnosed with ADHD, which congratulations on being diagnosed finally. Thank um, you. Thank you. I want to talk to you about what it was like for you growing up being undiagnosed with ADHD, what did that feel like for you? So one of the hardest things about not being diagnosed, and I mean, nobody had any clue. And so for folks out there who may not be familiar um, with ADHD, one of, um, one of the things with ADHD is particularly in, um, people who are assigned female at birth, which I am and I identify as, as a woman, um, is that oftentimes the symptoms manifest differently than they do in kids who are assigned male at birth. Um, and so uh, take a little bit of a digression. Part of the reason that I thought, sought my own diagnosis is because um, my son has ADHD also. And so just in sort of reading and trying to understand um, his mind, I kind of started stumbling upon information about, you know, how it shows up in, in little girls. Um, and so, for example, I was not, you know, that kid who couldn't sit still. I was not that kid who was, you know, constantly speaking out of turn. Um, I was a pretty quiet, um, and a lot of people I think would have said shy kid. Like I was very much with my nose in a book all the time. Um, you know, it, I was like, I love to draw and do crafts um, and I would get really, really into it. It was like super imaginative. And I was also a really bright kid, which is the other reason people often missed it. Um, and so when I was engaged in something, like I was on top of it and I would go all in, like super, like really focused, like honed in on every detail. Um, and so people were just like, oh, Nadine is like a bright kid who just happens to not care about entire aspects of her academic life and also refuses to put things away and refuses to turn off lights. And so what I remember is, you know, teachers getting really frustrated with me on occasions because it would be like I was an A student and I seemed to be able to turn out those A's easily and then there would be like the occasional subject where I was a C student and they'd be like, well, what are you doing? Like, yeah, this try, just try, like do it, do the work. Why aren't you doing the work? Um, and then the further along I went in school, the more those disparities started to show up, up academically. There were certain things where I would excel and then there were other things where I would absolutely tank. And the assumption was always, the reason you're getting the low grades is because you're not trying. Yeah. Um, I really struggled with organization. Like my room was almost always messy. Um, I was 
like I would lose things all the time. Um, yeah, like I, I would like walk out of a room and forget to turn off the lights with aggravated my mother to no end. And the message I constantly got was, you're not trying hard enough. You're capable of this. The reason you're not doing it is because you're not trying. You're not trying. You're not trying. Um, and I would resolve in my head, like, okay, I got to try harder. I've got to do better. I've got to be better. And it would seem that no matter how hard I tried, you know, I might do better for, you know, a week or two. And then yeah. I would fall back into my old patterns. And so what I thought, um, and it's something that unfortunately became this almost indelible, indelible part of my self-concept was, I'm lazy and I'm not doing well enough. Like I'm not trying hard enough. I don't know why I want to try. I'm trying to try, but I'm not doing it. And so I felt really terrible about myself. It was just like, I don't know why I'm like such a fucking failure um, at certain things. And I don't know why I'm so lazy. I don't know why I'm such a screw up in these ways. And I keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Um, then that lasted like well into adulthood because it manifested in a bunch of ways in adulthood too, that I'm like, Oh, now I'm like, Oh, it was the ADHD, but I didn't realize it was like, why can't I keep a schedule? Um, why do I like forget about commitments I have? Why am I constantly losing my keys? Um, why can I never show up anywhere on time? I was always like, I'm always 15 minutes early or 15 minutes late. I can't get anywhere on time. Like, what is the matter with me? Why do I keep screwing this up? Just why? Like, why can I not make a grocery list? Why does it take me three hours to like buy food when every other person can do it in like an hour? Like, and then I forget half the things, even though I had a list, like what is the <laughs> matter with me? Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure like, all of that was that like to have to to have people telling you they weren't trying probably i i feel like it might have weighed on you in two ways as just a human being and then it's like a black person to have the authority figures in your life telling you you're not trying enough like that couldn't have been fun for you oh absolutely and you know at home and from my family there was a lot of pressure put on me um, my parents put a lot of pressure on me because there was a ton of pressure put on them to um, to be successful and above reproach um, in ways that align with uh, sort of, you know, these colonial and white supremacist ideas about what it means to be successful. So there was, you know, my parents put so much pressure on me to achieve academically. You know, I grew up in one of those, I, I think a lot of us now are familiar with stories of um, children of first generation immigrants, which I am, um, whose parents are like, you know, if you come home with a B, like it might as well have been an F, like, what are you doing? You, <laughs> no. Like failed at everything. Those were my parents. Um, and so having these sort of like disparate grades, like they couldn't deal with it. Um, you know, there was real pressure to always be like well-dressed, well-groomed, like basically don't give anybody in the outside world any reason to say anything about you. You um, had to be the perfect, the perfect black person because- I had to be the perfect black person. Yeah. Um, you know, like, like I was literally told 
um, you know, again, I think it's something that some people may be familiar with, but that whole idea of you have to be twice as good to get half as much, I was told yeah. that constantly growing up. Um, so yeah, you're right. There was that other layer of feeling like I was failing and like really terror sometimes because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I'm not even as good um, in certain respects, let alone twice as good. I was like, I'm like, I remember being a teenager and being like panicking um, as I approached the age where I was, you know, expected to move out and go to university and whatever, because it was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die. Like, I'm gonna leave my parents' house. I'm gonna die on the streets, apparently. Um, Cause I can't, I can't do anything. Cause like, I'm just I'm, not good enough. And no one's told me like, no one is affirming that I can do stuff. They're always telling yeah. me I'm not to, yeah. And I, and I feel that same way, like obviously different disability, different experience, but as a disabled person with physical disabilities, I felt the same way. Like I had to be, I had to know everything. I had to do really well. I had to push myself to be this perfect student. And I wasn't, and I like, I was, I, you know, I got B's and maybe the occasional A in high school. And I, you know, but I, to get that B, I worked my ass off to get that B and that B to me was an A and it was anything below a, a B like my family was different and didn't wasn't so concerned about the grades but for me for myself I would look at that and go well it's I failed <laughs> it's bad and that's so much like I you know and now I, I think back to you know young Maggie and now young Andrew and I'm like that's just that's that's so much to carry around when you're so young I mean it's so much to carry around ever yeah, like, like I carry when you're I, that young. Yeah, no, I carry some of that stuff now, even into like what I'm doing. Like, even though I work for myself now and I do all my own stuff and I, I make my own schedule and I do my own hours and I I'm run my own business basically. But like, even now, if I do something that goes below what I think I should have done, I'm like, oh, I failed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. Like, I I really. And I, and I think this work may, I've accepted it may have to go on for the rest of my life. Like I really have to be conscious about how I talk to myself when I don't meet my own expectations, because it was like, some of those expectations are not realistic. Um, and they are, they're born out of, you know, old wounds from childhood. And those wounds, like they're deep. <laughs> Um, yeah, and cuts. so sometimes I'm like, you know what, the part of your brain that is freaking out and wants to start like the part of you that wants to start berating yourself and saying like, oh my God, I, I completely fucked up and I failed and like, I suck. I'm like, that's the scared young meeting Kid, in there yeah. talking, trying to protect you. Um, to, like find some time to reassure her or whatever but like don't listen to her also because yeah. she's wrong um she's just a really scared little she's a scared she's, kid she's eight and she doesn't know yeah like, she's eight and she doesn't know what else to do so she's like losing it in there um yeah. but but sometimes I don't succeed at, at reminding myself that and then I'm like oh okay um yeah I feel real bad so what was that let's let's go into like the like the getting diagnosed what was that day like and what was it like to be to finally be given a proper full diagnosis? Um, so that day was interesting because as I said, what made me finally suspect I had ADHD was, you know, reading and doing research as a parent to try and support my son and stumbling across information about 
how ADHD manifests in girls. And I will say to be perfectly honest, when I found the information initially, I was like, oh, okay. Like who was following me around in my childhood? Because this is exactly me. <laughs> and then I was like, okay. Um, and this is something that you do when you have an ADHD brain. And then I just basically went down this rabbit hole for three or four days of looking specifically at how does ADHD manifest in girls? Um, what does a diagnosed ADHD look like in women? Um, I had also been identified as gifted when I was a child. I looked up, you know, like, you know, how ADHD manifests in kids who are gifted and everything I was reading, I was like, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. So by, so when I started the process to get diagnosed, I had already, like, I was like, I, I just need somebody official to confirm what I already know. I was like, yeah. this is what I have. Um, you know, there were quizzes you could take and it was, you know, like if you fulfill like five out of 10 of these, then you may have ADHD. And I was like, I fulfill 10 out of 10 of these, like seriously. Um, so getting the diagnosis was, I was happy um, because I was like, okay, I can now go to like everyone in my life and be like, I, I went to see like the doctors and the psychologists and I did all the testing and blah, blah, blah. And I got the diagnosis from people that you will believe, but also I was just like, thank you. Like that was pretty much my attitude. I was like, yeah, thanks. I know. I like <laughs> clear, like even as I was doing some of the testing, um, I sort of was able, like, I think they, they structure the test so that you, aren't really supposed to know what what answers would will yield what results but i kind yeah. of started to clue in of like oh okay i think like this part of the test is evaluating like my spatial reasoning and this part of the test is evaluating like my verbal reasoning um and even taking the test i was like oh my gosh like it's so obvious like ah of um, course. so yeah so i think you know i was i was like thank you good thank you that's what i wanted that's what i was here for. that's what i came for um and so I think I wasn't so much relieved as I was just like, yeah, I agree with you. But I think had the opposite occurred and they had said, oh, like, oh, you don't have ADHD. I would have lost it. And I just would have been like, all of you were bad at your job. <laughs> but that's not what happened. So I was like, okay, you're good at your job. Good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Like I, it, something, you know, and sometimes it's, it's a, it's a, I would say it's an advantage or it's something good about me. And then sometimes it's really not is deep, 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 deep down. I think I actually have a very strong sense of myself. And so sometimes when, even though I didn't know I had ADHD, you know, reading and doing my own research, I was like, yeah, I am very much able to see myself in this. And I'm very confident about my interpretation of what this information means in relation to who I am as a person. Um, and so when it comes to like certain things like, you know, getting diagnosed, especially with sort of mental, emotional things, um, I'm usually pretty certain uh, walking into a room when I'm talking to like a doctor or, or a mental health professional or a diagnostician, like, yeah. And I, like, now that I have context, I'm like, I know what's up with myself. And so, yeah, I walked into that that whole process and it was it happened over like many I think it was like probably like about three four months all told like from the time I went to see my 
my regular doctor and got referred to a, an ADHD clinic. And then there's testing you have to do. And then there's more testing and there's like visits with a psychiatrist and a psychologist and the whole thing. Um, but yeah, I started the process cause I was like, I, I kind of already know what's going on and now I need help. Like, and tell did me, you, like, yeah. did you, that's a, that's a lot of process. Did you like, celebrate that within yourself when you when you had it or was it more like I I knew it I know already so now I just move on I wouldn't uh, I don't know if celebration is exactly the word I used but I remember I was extremely relieved um like it's hard for me to articulate how relieved I was um and one of the reasons that I was so relieved is it felt like I had been carrying around this this weight like and 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 it was the weight of all the times people had told me as I said like I wasn't trying enough and I wasn't good enough and I was like and it was like I could finally once and for all acknowledge like this isn't mine this this weight this responsibility I felt to like keep berating myself for not being a certain way I can put it down because it isn't that I'm not trying hard enough it's that my brain is different and so yeah that was such a huge relief I was like I can finally stop beating myself up because that's kind of what I was taught to do by other people. And because I feel, because I have felt all my life that that's what people expect of me, that if I can't perform in the ways that people want me to perform, then the least I can do is be like, I'm a trash human being. Um, And I was like, I don't have to apologize for myself anymore. And I don't have to apologize for the way I am. So I can put down this shitty crappy weight of all these bad things that I've been told to think about myself and now I can start doing the work of actually figuring out how my brain actually works so that I can you know do things in a way that makes sense for my hot mess express of a brain I like that and I feel like that might be the tagline for the show hot mess express of a brain (laughs) could be what we call it could be what the title of the show is I don't know yet it's yours it's yours um, I think I might have to use it for sure. Uh, but you know, I, I don't want to bring your family into it too much, but I do wonder, does you having ADHD and your son having ADHD, does, do you feel like a kinship with him now that you both li- deal with this? This is very funny. Um, yes, I do. And after the relief, there was also a mourning process because even though I known Uh, I guess at that point, um, we'd known about my son's diagnosis for three, four years. He was diagnosed when he was around seven. Um, I could look back on my own parenting and look back particularly at times before he had been diagnosed. And I realized like, oh, I did some of the things to him that my parents did to me. And because I'd spent my whole life sort of assuming that, you know, I deserved people's criticism and vitriol um I wasn't able to see at the time that like no my like 
what I was doing to my son and putting pressure on him to behave in certain ways or do things in certain ways that he wasn't capable of. I was like, oh no, like I now really can, I, I feel on like a deep visceral level how that must have felt for him when I did those things to him. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, I'm so sad. And I'm so sorry that I did those things. Um, so, you know, that was hard. And, and I mean, and I don't want to do, like dwell on it too much because it was obviously a lot harder for him than it was for me. But like that made me really sad um, that I had done that to him as a parent. But now, um, yeah, I think I am not all the time. Sometimes I get frustrated um, because parenting is like hard, especially in these COVID times. But I think I'm much more empathetic than I would have been otherwise to just the fact that he kind of has his own process. And also, I think I have more patience now um, with the fact that, you know, he has like, you know, he's a teenager now and he has certain struggles or he may, you know, do things like he's like me, like he's sloppy and he forgets to pick things up and whatnot. And, it, you know, like now it doesn't feel like such a big deal to just be like, okay, you know what? part of parenting him right now is that I'm going to have to remind him maybe like literally 20 times yeah. to pick something up or to do something or to go somewhere. Um, you know, I may have to help him manage things like making food and, and eating and things like that, that you would think a 14 year old could handle on their own because I'm like, you know, that's part of it. And also knowing based on my own journey that I'm like, just because he's struggling with those things now, it doesn't mean that he will never figure it out. Um, but it may yeah. take longer or it may just look different than it looks for other people, including me. Um, because even though we have the same diagnosis, our ADHD does not manifest in the exact same way. And we're just not the same people, um, which he is very fond of reminding me. Like he is very much like, <laughs> don't relate to me. Like, just because and we have like, the same diagnosis. But I'm trying to love you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's funny because he said that from the day I got my diagnosis. Like, the day I came home and I was like, hey, fam, I have ADHD. He was like, I hope you don't think that because <laughs> you have ADHD and I have ADHD that we are the same person. Because we are oh, not. Oh, no. Poor Nadine <laughs> trying to bomb with her kid and have this really important moment. And, of course, being a teenager, what does he do? He just no it can't be true go away go and you know and I'm just like okay you know what fair enough because that's also part of being a teenager like what teenage boy is like I want to be just like my mom like me I oh, was so sweet oh that's so sweet I mean we had our moments I but, I, but I sort of I sort of I mean and I'll tell you 20 years on from being a teenager 37 now 20 years on from teenagehood he'll come back to you and you'll be yeah. friends. He'll come back. He'll, he will come back to you. He's like, I mean, and I mean, I have to say, like, he's 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 great, and I really love hanging out with him um, when he wants to hang out with me, which is not always. But also, I'm like, yeah, like that's part of being a teenager. Like, you're he's he he wants to forge his own identity, and and I'm like, I'm I'm fine with that. You know, oh, fingers crossed. We have lots of time to, you know, build our relationship. And so right now, it's much more about you know, being with his friends and, and as much as he can be during COVID, but yeah, yeah right. you know, I mean, he's kind of like, you're my mom. You're not go my away. Friend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but do you feel like, you know, when he is having a tough day, you can be like, you know what, as much as you don't want me to say that I relate to you, like I do have the same thing and I know what it's like 
what you're feeling. Yeah, and and so it's it's interesting. I I sort of try to be uh like clever and stealth about it because when he's having a hard time, <laughs> what you don't want to do with him, or at least I can't do it with him, is be like, you know what? I really like get what you're what you're going through. Um, and it's funny because I was like this as a teenager, but I won't tell him this. <laughs> is when he's having a hard time, he's like, no, I am the only person who has ever had a hard time with anything ever in the history of the world. Yeah. He sounds like you're running the mill teenager. Sounds like me yeah. when I was being really obstinate as a teenager. What are you talking about, mom? You don't get it. And I'd always do the thing when I was, right? a, when I was a teenager. I would say like, you're not in a wheelchair. I am. <laughs> and she'd be like, well, yeah, but, but also you're 14. Like, you don't know anything yeah. yet. <laughs> Yeah, I was exactly the same way as a teenager. Like, if I was in the mood, in a mood, I was just like, you can't relate to what I'm going through. It's so dramatic and terrible. So, yeah, what I try to remind myself is I'm like, okay, I will just remind myself in my own head that I have also been through this and then just try to, you know, feel out, you know, what kind of support I can offer him in this moment. And then oftentimes the conversation will come later when the, like when the emotions have simmered down a little bit. Um, So that's like, that's on a good day, but then there are like tough parenting days where it's like, because I am also emotional and dramatic as hell. Um, (laughs) You know, and because I have my own mental health struggles, like sometimes um, I don't have the capacity that I wish I had. And that's something that I th- like, I don't hear people talk about this a lot. There's sort of, I think this expectation that if you're a parent, that love and commitment you have to your child will somehow override anything else that you're dealing with. But I'm like, look, I'm like, I'm neuroatypical. And I also have like mental illnesses that I deal with. And those unfortunately don't go away. like because I have a kid as much as I wish they could and there are times where I'm like I can kind of like you know grit my teeth and like knuckle through it and kind of suppress my own stuff and but then there are days I really can't so there are some days where I'm like we're both like hella ADHD and the way I'm being ADHD and the way he's being ADHD are completely incompatible um and we have a really hard time dealing with each other Um, and you know, I, I try to mom, but I mom in a way that he is not receptive to, and I am not gracious about it. And fortunately, um, usually my partner will step in at that point, um, because my partner is neurotypical, which is not to say he doesn't have his own challenges and stresses. So like most days there's someone sort of where I can be like, okay, I'm out. Like I can't, I'm like, I'm dealing with this real bad. Um, so Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not perfect, but you know we try and we love each other and we yeah, we can. And I think you know I, I'm also curious, um, you know, as a, and we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but as a black woman being diagnosed with ADHD, was there was the medical team you worked with in getting diagnosed? Were they like were they culturally competent to the you know the instances of black people having ADHD? Did, did that ever come up? I'm gonna go with no. Um, because, uh, you know, I didn't specifically ask about everybody's ethnic background, but, you know, just based on visual cues, I assume everybody was white. Um, and nobody ever brought up my diagnosis in relation to being a black 
person. Um, didn't bring up my diagnosis really in relation to being a woman either, which I found interesting because as I've said many times now, um, as girls and women, our, our symptoms are different. Um, so yeah, you know, nobody was like, what would I say? Like, you know, like nobody hurled racial slurs at me. Like, I don't recall anybody saying anything where I was like, ah, that was a microaggression. But, it, you know, nobody mentioned um, or acknowledged my being a Black woman. So, for example, when they gave me resources to start, tr like, trying to learn and understand my own ADHD and, um, you know, sent me away with like books and websites and organizations that I could um, go to to start, you know, building a life that was more ADHD friendly. You know, I've now, I've since learned that there are like amazing black women out there who um, also have ADHD who provide really great support and information. Um, there's on Twitter, there's um, a woman who goes by uh, Black Girl Lost Keys, who's an amazing, like, ADHD yeah, resource. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, like, yeah, they didn't, they didn't think to, like, sort of ask me or offer me any, any like, resources or um, connect me with folks in the Black community who deal with ADHD. Because I, I have to assume, like, it just didn't occur to them that, like, as a Black woman, I might have specific needs um related to you know my black feminist that would relate to you know something pretty fundamental about the way that my brain works yeah i mean and of course that's just another layer of racialized medical care and how like we don't do it right ever <laughs> um, like yeah um well, so what would you have, if they were culturally competent, what would you have wanted them to mm -hmm. say to you? Um, I think the first thing I would have wanted them to ask me, and this is true of, I think, people in healthcare across the board, I would have loved it if they had asked me if it was important to me to connect with professionals or resources, like Black professionals or resources created by um by black folks um because like honestly it's not even and and it wasn't something that it occurred to, that it had occurred to me to ask for again because i had just gotten a diagnosis like i didn't yeah there were so many things that i was sort of trying to figure out and what i really wanted at that moment i was like i just want somebody to like help me figure out how to be a person with adhd um without feeling like I'm you know just trying to wade through the like morass of a million thoughts a minute all the time um but I would have loved that I, like if they had just asked me you know do you is that important to you can we connect you with someone and if they had even if they had just had like a list of resources available um that were like yeah hey you as a black person like here are specific books or here are specific people in the field. Um, one of the things that happened was that I got referred to a psychiatrist because we, um, they, we'd had a conversation about whether or not I wanted to go on medication or not. And I was like, I'm certainly open to having that conversation. Yeah. Um, if they had connected me with like a black psychiatrist and like, I know they exist. Um, you know, that would have been really, really amazing and helpful 
Um, and I mean, even better would have been if there had been people on their team who were black or again, even just non-white, I think would have made me feel the whole, medi- the whole medical team that you experienced were white people. Again, like I said, they didn't specifically ask, but they, they looked real white, like across the board. Yeah. I assume uh, so. I mean, I, I, I had a feeling you were going to say that anyway, but just like hear it is like, oh man, we have so much work to do. <laughs> we have so much work to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, you know, and you know, they were, they were nice and pleasant and they listened to me, but I, especially in those sort of circumstances where again, like, you know, I was pretty vulnerable. One part of my diagnosis involved sitting down with um, like the staff psychiatrist was not the person who wound up being my, like the psychiatrist who takes care of me on an ongoing basis, but the staff psychiatrist who was like, again, like a very pleasant man. Um, But it was like, sitting in front of a white man, like I'm always, like a white man that I don't know, I'm like, I'm always reluctant and I'm always making calculations in my head about whether or not to talk about my experience as a black woman specifically, because I'm like, I never know what the reaction is gonna be. Um, And in that situation where again, I was like, I feel confident in my, in the fact that I have ADHD, but I'm like, I'm also with a stranger um, talking about my brain and my mental health. Like, I don't always want to put myself in a situation where I'm like, I kind of have to trust this person. And if a microaggression comes up, then I'm going to have to deal with that. And I don't really feel like I want to. Um, Yeah. And also you're with the, you're with the stranger. You're with a stranger who can make make big medical decisions on your behalf without your consent. And if you exactly if something were to happen where he felt like or you felt uncomfortable and he took that as a slight or something, he could just write a script that says, Oh, she needs this. Give her this. Bye. Exactly. Exactly. You know, if if something happens and it upsets me and I get, you know, angry or raise my voice or speak sharply. Um, you know, there are, of course, then there's like the concern about being labeled and dismissed as an angry black woman. Um, I have so many complicated feelings about that phrase because I'm like, yeah, sometimes I'm an angry black woman because you're being obnoxious. (laughs) Um, And so anger is a completely valid reaction to have. And I'm like, and I'm always a black woman. Um, But yeah, the way that idea is used to dismiss Black women's justifiable anger is yeah. infuriating. Um, and like I said, none of that came up, but in like, it's just, it's in my head. In the back of your head, you're always on edge because you've been taught through, through our systems of just being humans that you are, you've been taught through, a cultural, through our cultural competence that we are not competent when it comes to race. And so we have a lot of work to do. Exactly, exactly. And so it's just, it's just one of those things that I cannot take for granted. Like I can't ever walk into a medical appointment with a white practitioner that I don't know, and who hasn't shown me that they're culturally competent and assume that they're culturally competent. It's just not something I'm, I don't have the benefit of assuming that I just can't. Yeah, Um, I feel the same way when it comes to CP. 
again, not at all the same thing, but similar in like, uh, when I go into a, a practitioner's office or a therapist's office, I cannot assume they know anything about disability. Mm-hmm. And I have to start with, hi, my name is Andrew. I'm very disabled. Here's how my disability manifests itself. Here's all the things you need to know. And here's like, and you, you get really good at listing every piece of who you are really quickly in a bullet point. So they know exactly enough to help you. And like, isn't that weird where you walk into an appointment with somebody who's, you know, a trained professional and has expertise that you don't have. And then oftentimes one of the first things you have to do is unpack. Yeah. Like sort of, yeah. Like, and educate them and orient them be like, okay, now go now that I've told you all of the things, um, and that's exhausting in and of itself. But then, yeah, you know, when you encounter those practitioners who were like, huh, okay, I don't, I don't care or believe you. And I'm not going to take any of that into account. Um, no, it's. Yeah. When you've done all the legwork and then they're like, uh-huh, that doesn't matter. What about this? It's like, well, but no, but I just told you everything. Can you, can we acknowledge that? Yeah. And I'm like, it, it's completely relevant. Um, and like you said, the, the specific identities that we hold are different. And so this, like the ways that those, our identities kind of influence those experiences, yes, are going to be different, but like that general kind of dismissiveness um, that you can encounter when you are a person um, who doesn't hold all of the most privileged identities. um, I think there's definitely a commonality there. Like, uh, you know, when I've, had conversations with my trans friends, you know, again, they will be dismissed for different things or it will show up in different ways. But when they're like, yeah, I went to see like a professional about a problem um, and then they completely dismissed and ignored my transness or belittled my transness or did something that was going to be harmful to me as a trans person and then like totally didn't acknowledge that that happened. I'm like, yeah, that tracks. I believe yeah, that happens. That's like a hundred percent, I do. I'm like, I believe that, uh, like an otherwise very nice, well, like I, I can't even say like well-intentioned person, but like a nice, pleasant-seeming person, totally did something to like, first of all, undermine your humanity, and then, you know, not give you the care that you deserve, and didn't think twice about doing that. Oh yeah, I get as somebody with a disability who's been in many offices for many different things. I we, well, the circumstances of, of, of for you like like blackness may be different for me with disability, or you and me different from a trans or non-binary person. Um, um, you know, the feeling of dismissal is the same. Absolutely, but you know like in all of my years or all of my adult years, I have had, I would say one, no, two, two white doctors who were incredibly culturally competent. And then they both like moved on from their practices and I had to give them up. (laughs) And I'm just like, I'm so sad. Um, I had one doctor in particular um, who was our family doctor and my son was little, who was just wonderful. Um, I was like, sometimes I still like Google search to see if she's maybe possibly somewhere like 
within driving distance of Toronto. And I'm like, when I say driving distance, I'm like, I would drive three hours to see this person because oh, wow. it was so great. Um, but she's not. And I'm just, I'm like, I'm so sad because she was fantastic. Well, you should fly to wherever she is when it's safe to do that and be like, hi, I just want to check in. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I, I want to be your patient. I don't care. Um, <laughs> it's so worth it. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, cultural competency is not, uh, I wouldn't say it's prevalent in my experience. Yeah, mine neither. What would you say is, now, because you do sex education and you're so good at it and it's you're like something you're really good at, how does your ADHD impact your job as a sex educator? So like you, um, I work for myself and that's a decision I made before I was diagnosed. But now that I have my diagnosis, I'm like, oh, it totally makes sense that I can't, I don't do well working for other people. (laughs) And as long as being self-employed is an option for me, I will be self-employed. I'm like, uh, you know, I, there's so many things like, I, I can't keep to a regular schedule. Like regular schedules are just horrible for me, but I still have to have some kind of predictable structure and balancing those two things is really, I think for somebody else would be really tedious. And I'm like, if I had an employee like me, I wouldn't want to do it. Um, so I'm like, yeah, I have to find this kind of, and it, and it kind of changes and I always have to kind of flow with it where it's like, It's not that every single day is exactly the same. I have to give myself the grace and flexibility to sometimes, you know, show up to work on a day and say like, you know what? I had planned to do A and my brain is not going to cooperate. So I'm going to do B instead. And I can do that when I work for myself. Um, Somebody in an interview recently asked me, um, you know, how I felt I best connected with like my clients and people that I teach and work with. And I was like, I don't have an answer to that because again, like that's why I have a YouTube channel and an Instagram and courses and books and I write articles and do all of these different things and educate in different ways. And I'm like, because I'm good at different things on different days. That's awesome. Um, And also because I have ADHD, I work best when I am working on things that I find interesting and fun and and engaging. So I think that's why a lot of my work tends to have a little bit of a creative bent to it. Um, Oh, it's so fun. I love your work. It's so like big and, and exciting and, but also like just some of the stuff you tweet is, and I I haven't looked at your Twitter in a while because Twitter is a hellscape, but (laughs) I mean, yikes. But, um, you know, I like that you do a whole bunch of different stuff. And now that I know that you have, you know, now that I, I understand why a little bit, it makes so much more sense. It's like, oh, no wonder she's so creative. Her brain's firing off a million neurons all at once. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, so being able to work for myself just allows me to, to, to work in ways that actually facilitate getting work done. Um, so again, a lot of people may be aware with the side of ADHD where, yeah, you have like a million different ideas and you're hopping from one thing to the other, to the other, to the other. Um, there's a flip side of ADHD that a lot of us experience, which is called hyper-focus. And that's when something really grabs you and you just want to do that. And you can 
you know, just get lost in the thing that has grabbed your brain for hours and hours and hours. And an explanation that I've been given for why that is, is because um, one of the theories about ADHD is that our brains don't produce dopamine, like don't produce the same level of dopamine as people yeah. who are neurotypical. Um, and so that sort of like internal biochemical like reward that most people get when they accomplish a task, for example, we don't get that or we don't get it we don't get enough of that for us to sort of have motivation to do things that are kind of boring. Like if you're like, I don't like folding laundry, um, you know, a neurotypical person might be like, okay, I don't like folding laundry, but I'm going to fold my laundry. And then when I'm done, my body kind of gives me this like little chemical high. Boosted, like, yeah, I did it. Good for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I don't get that. Cause I don't like folding laundry. Um, that much. So when, so the theory is that when we as people with ADHD find something that really ratchets up our dopamine because it's fun and interesting, we kind of become consumed by it because we're like, oh my God, dopamine. Oh, thank God. I need this. My body needs it. My brain needs it. Okay. I just want to keep doing this. Um, unfortunately, the flip side is that you can get so consumed by it that you will like do things like forget to eat um, or forget to go to sleep. It's the reason why I can only play The Sims if I'm on vacation um, and like I, I have to arrange it with my family. Like I have to be like, okay, I'm going to fire up The Sims. So I need you to have things to occupy yourself for like 48 solid hours. Um, I have to set alarm. I have to have like food right beside me laid out already. And then I have to set alarms to remind me to go to bed because I'm like, if I'm playing The Sims, like nothing else is happening. It's just not, um, I'm so consumed by it. Um, but I have, I'm learning to sort of life hack that where I'm like, ah, if I figure out ways of working that really engage my brain, like I will sit down for a solid three hours and work on a thing and it'll be fine. Cause I'll feel like I'm having the best time. Yeah, cause it's fun. Um, yeah. Do you feel like you can talk about being having ADHD as a sex educator, or is that something that's been hard for you to like bring into your work? No, I talk about it all the time. Um, so something I do, for example, when I'm anytime I'm giving any kind of a, a presentation or a talk, um, is I will always have a slide towards the beginning where I talk about my identities my privileges and my biases. And it's just basically a long kind of like uh, list of like, hey, here's who I am. Um, you know, and I'll talk about, you know, my identity as like a black person, as femme, as a queer person, um, as, you know, the, the child of, you know, immigrants. Um, and one of the things I will talk or will say is that I'm neuroatypical, I have ADHD, and I will also uh, talk about the fact that I live with mental illness. And I'm like, just as a baseline, just so you know where I'm coming from. Um, partly because I think in sex education, all of us who do this work have a particular perspective. Um, I know that there are some folks who try to approach the work from a really neutral stance. And that's not something that I personally believe in. I just don't think that that's possible. Yeah, I think, too. yeah, I'm like, there's so much, there's so much information, there's so much happening in terms of human sexuality. I'm like, there's no way that like, even if I felt like I was being neutral, I'm always like vetting and curating what information I'm giving. It's always being interpreted 
the information I'm giving people is always being interpreted through me. And I'm like, I don't even understand what it would mean to sort of take myself out of that. Um, So I really want to be upfront with folks and just be like, hey, um, this is who I am. And then in terms of the ADHD specifically, um, you know, I sometimes it shows up in the way I present, you know, sometimes I'll be talking and I'll go off on a tangent. Um, Sometimes it's hard for me to maintain eye contact. Um, Something that your listeners don't know, but you can see it as we've been talking, like my hands are all over the place. Um, when I talk, that's, that's likely part of the ADHD as well. Um, so I just want people to be aware, um, because sometimes in the same way that, uh, you know, I try to make space for folks who may need accommodations from me because they may, you know, have like disabilities or specific needs. Um, and I will accommodate, you know, as many of those as I can. I'm like, I also have (laughs) needs that I, you know, I hope the audience can accommodate and understand. And I'm like, I just want you to understand why, or, or there are things that I need to do for myself when I'm presenting. Um, and I'm like, you know, Hey, this is why ADHD. It's fine. Yeah. Um, and so we talked about how it affects you as a sex educator. Now, how does it affect you? Because this this was at one time just a sexy podcast. Now we're an everything podcast. But if if we were to talk about how ADHD affects your sex, your sex, how how do, okay? So um, yeah. So you you sent me that question in advance, and. I, I had to think a while about how I was going to answer that honestly. And the honest answer is, at this point, I'm still kind of trying to figure that out. And again, I think it's, it's partly to do with having been undiagnosed for so long. Um, so a lot of these things feel very, I'm just like, this is just how I am. And sometimes I'm like, I'm not always great at kind of teasing out like, what is the ADHD versus what is just me and how I function, Um, particularly in terms of sexuality, because sexuality um, and the way people express themselves sexually, and I'm no exception, can be so specific and nuanced. Um, But some of the things I think might be ADHD related are that So I am not somebody who experiences what they call spontaneous arousal a lot. Um, Like I'm not one of those people who will typically like look at a person and be like, ooh, you look sexy to me and now I'm turned on. Like that happens very occasionally, but I'm usually one of those people who's like, I need to sort of start, like I kind of almost need to kind of like start a sexual interaction with my partner. And then it's like, I'll get physically aroused and then I'll, the desire part will kick in. Yeah. Um, and something that I realized is tough for me is transitions, like just sort of transitioning from one type of activity to another. Um, and so because I'm, you know, I'm parent and, and I work and I kind of, my day generally has that kind of a flow where I'm like, you know, most days, uh, the opportunity to have sex is going to come in the evening or at night. And if it's evening time and I'm chilling, like it could be like, oh, I'm really into like my Netflix show or whatever, whatever. And so making the transition from that to going into sex for me is challenging. 
sometimes. Yeah, because of like, the hyper the hyper focus and the like the hyper focus, and I'm like. So but like, I if you were on vacation, watching. if you were on vacation playing The Sims, and your husband and your partner was like, "You want to do things," you'd be like, "No, I'm in the middle of The Sims. Go away." Yeah, I'm like, but I'm playing The Sims right now. Like, what? This is what my brain is engaged in. Or Dick will be there um, later. It's fine. Go. So yeah, oftentimes my like a thought I often have um, when I am in a sexual situation is I'm like, "Oh my god, I love this!" Like. How do you do this more often? Um, but it's it can be hard for me to like get into it because or like you know feel motivated to do it because it takes me a little while to kind of like get like revved up and excited and 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 get to that point where I'm like oh my god this is so fun right all right um, it's like when so I I used to be a runner um, which is so weird to say because I'm I'm like I generally don't think of myself as an and and as an athletic person, but for many years, I took up running and then ran for several years. And my experience of running was always exactly the same, where for the first like kilometer of my run, I was like, oh my God, it's so hard to breathe. And this is uncomfortable, uh, 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 don't like it. And then my body would sort of switch and it was like, my body would be like, okay, I get it, I get it. You wanna keep running. Um, and I would switch from what's called anaerobic breathing, which is the, like really heavy panting, like shallow breathing to what's called aerobic breathing, where I think it's, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a physician, so I can't describe it really well, but it's basically kind of your, your body figures out how to breathe in a more efficient way and it becomes comfortable. And when it, I could always feel the switch happen, I'd be like, oh, this feels great. This is great. I can run forever. I love it. I'm like Zen and calm and moving along. That's kind of what sex is like for me. And so what would happen with running is some days it was really hard for me to just like get up and leave the house because I was like, but it's gonna suck in the beginning. Oh my God. Um, but then but then once I got into it, I was like, oh, I'm so glad I did this. That's what sex is like for me. <laughs> not kidding and you. not so much, I'm not so much like, oh my God, it's gonna suck. But I'm just like, I don't know if it's gonna be as fun as the fun thing I'm doing now which is yeah. often like binge watching a show um, or going down a YouTube spiral. Um, and it's hard for, it's hard for me to like make convince my brain. I'm like, you're going to have a, like, you're going to have a really good time when just, you, you gotta get, get into it. Yeah. You just got to get there. And I'm like, just walk away from the show. Just walk away. I'm like, but I want to watch one more episode. How do you none? I want to keep your partner out of it, out of like specifics, but mm -hmm. because you're, you have that, thought process in your brain how do you make it so that your partner doesn't like see that or do you are you very transparent about like oh my ADHD brain doesn't say I don't want to but I love you and I like this and so eventually I'll be into it like how do you well I, I think yeah like we're we're pretty open about it and um you know he's always like very understanding and like never pushy or pressury like um and so, yeah, like, I think when it, when it works best is when I'm like, okay, you know what? Okay. Okay. Let me just give it a try. And I think he's like, yeah. And I mean, we've talked about this a lot and I try to be open about the fact that I'm like, this isn't you. Like, this is not a like, oh, well, if I was with somebody else, 
then I would be good to go. I'm like, this is just not like how I function sexually. I function in a, this other different way. Um, and so, yeah, like I try to be as open as I can, but a lot of it has also been sort of me figuring things out in the moment um, or figure, you know, thinking about like, oh, okay, why was I not in the mood then? Like, why did I choose to stay with my Netflix show instead of go have sex and, you know, debriefing about it afterwards. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty open and transparent, like, especially with my partner about just kind of what my process is around that and what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. And, yeah. And again, like, it's not, it's not like every conversation has been like perfect or like there's never hurt feelings or, um, stress around it but you know we we just keep we keep working through it and and it's like i said it's it it's it's also hard to find information about adhd and sex um that except for this like very scary narrative about how people with adhd are like huge sexual risk takers um and that during adolescence they get into all kinds of trouble um because they can't control themselves and I was like, that is not helpful to me yeah. on any level. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, like to, to, have, to have the only information you have is about risk. The same with, I think, physical disability or intellectual disability too, is like, oh, they're at risks of being abused or they're at risk of this. Is like, what about fucking pleasure? What about, where's that? Exactly. I'm like, can we, can, like, okay, I'm like, thank you. Um, for telling me all the ways that I, I could die. wind up. Yeah, like I'm going to either die or wind up in an unintended pregnancy or like risk being abused. Can you please tell me how I can have fun and enjoy myself? Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, sorry, can, me... I, can I pause just for a second? My yeah, yeah, of course. Taken of off. course. Um, it's super hot. So you, I would suggest bringing your sunscreen, please. You're not going to do it, are you? No. Okay, not a good idea, like for real. I love you too. Bye. <laughs> Is that your youth? Okay. Okay, we're good? We are good. Was, it, that your, was it your kid? That was my kid who doesn't want to wear sunscreen. <laughs> well, rest assured, I was supposed to wear sunscreen the other day and I didn't either. And my mom was like, why didn't you? So don't worry. It, at, at 37. Okay. At 37. And you're, so. you're, st you're still here. Um, he'll get burned. It'll hurt and it'll suck. And he'll be like, I wish that I wore the sunscreen. It's true. It's true. Well, and see, this is, this is the tricky thing. Um, because he's partly melanated as a biracial kid and this is the same thing with me you don't burn but you still run the same risk of skin cancer oh uh, well, that's not fun it's not fun at all yeah there, like there's this myth that if you are a melanated human um you don't you're not near at the same risk of sun damage or um skin cancer but you are it just doesn't it doesn't show up in as the same way frequently it's like yeah that's horrible and don't worry i'll cut that all out i'll, I'll, I'll cut it out. <laughs> okay good yeah this suddenly becomes like a podcast about wearing sunscreen um, yeah it could we should and totally how teenagers do don't it. listen to you 
yeah yeah um okay i'm gonna i'm gonna pick it up from wherever i was where was i okay uh so one of the things you said in the questionnaire that really spoke to me when i read it you said there are parts about adhd that suck and you've sort Mm -hmm. of like touched on these a little bit through the conversation today but can you elaborate more on what parts of adhd you really hate and they they really suck and that you wish that you could if you could snap your fingers tomorrow and not have this symptom what are they and why Okay, so the thing that I probably hate the most about having ADHD is that my executive functioning sucks. And so executive functioning is the part of your brain that handles things like um, figuring out, like if you have a task in front of you. So um, I'm going to try and give a concrete example. Um, Okay, let's say you wanted to build a table you're like I need a table what do I like how do I build a table your executive functioning is the part of your brain that sort of allows you to problem solve so that you come up with a series of steps so it might be okay um and like I'm even struggling to come up with the steps in this example but I'm like maybe step one is um get the go on google and figure out how to build table uh, step two might be, okay, yeah, like look at the list of materials. Number three might be go get the list of materials. And then like within that, there are other steps. Like when you go get the materials, it might be like, okay, I need to make a list. Um, here are the things I need to put on the list. I need to go to the store. My, I, I, I find that so difficult, like that kind of thinking. Um, and I wish I was good at it because like, as we were saying at the top of the podcast with like people who can use academic language like it's a normal way of speaking I admire people who are organized and who can sort through the nuances of a task so well um like I I admire them so much and I'm so jealous (laughs) that there are people who can do that so yeah I struggle with that in terms of figuring out how to do tasks I struggle with that in terms of being able to organize and articulate my thoughts. Um, So I am someone who often has like very high level complex ideas. And as soon as I try to verbalize them, I start getting confused Um, because it's, it's like the way I've described it to folks is it's like having a puzzle with all the pieces And what my brain wants to do is be like, I need to put all the pieces together at the same time. Oh, wow. It's like, I'm just like, and it it feels paralyzing at times. That's the thing I hate the most. I absolutely hate it. Like it's physically stressful. Um, So one of my mental illnesses is anxiety and anxiety is often comorbid with ADHD. Um, And I'm kind of like, I don't know, like they're obviously related, but I'm kind of like, Uh, I can't talk I don't really know exactly how or what's causing what or whatnot but yeah so even like I I said earlier like going grocery shopping I find going grocery shopping often stressful particularly if I'm under a time crunch like it's a little better now that I'm like okay when I go grocery shopping I need to like book a half day so like if I'm gonna go grocery shopping on a work day I'm like I only work half a day that day because the other half of the day is me 
slowly going through the grocery store, like looking at my list, taking picking up the thing. I'm going to have to backtrack at least like four or five times. Like that's just how it is for me. Is Instacart um, and those services now that they're like really prevalent in the pandemic, are they helpful at all? Because you don't have to backtrack. You can just put it in your cart and click. Unfortunately, no, because I still have to remember what it is I want. And part of what is helpful for me if I'm going to the grocery store is I will see things as I'm shopping and be like, oh, I forgot to put that on my list because I'm also not great at making lists of things that I can't physically see. One thing that has been helpful for us as a family was what was really like impossible almost for me was that we used to try and plan out meals and then we would make a list based off of the meals that we planned. And I was just like, oh no, you're trying to get me to like do two separate but related tasks that both require a bunch of executive functioning and then kind of like cross-reference information. Um, It was like, I I would want to cry most weeks. So we started doing HelloFresh. Amazing. Which I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, ugh, it's a lot of packaging. And I know it's not great for the environment, but I was like, yeah, this is an accommodation I'm going to make for the fact that I'm neuroatypical. Um, I just pick, we don't do it for every meal, but we do it for like more four out of seven meals a week. Yeah. And I'm like, we just pick the meals and then they come and then there were instructions and all the ingredients are there. Um, and I'm like, I never we- thought of Hello Fresh, and also Hello Fresh. If you want to sponsor me, like I'm here. Yeah, please sponsor this con. But like, they're one of my favorite podcast sponsors. Hello Fresh, sponsor. Um, Hello Fresh, sponsor. Yeah, sponsor both of us. We're both content creators. Um, sponsor Nadine's YouTube channel and sponsor my podcast. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, do it. Shout out to Hello Fresh. Um, it's it's been it's been like a game. It's been a game changer. So it means that we still buy groceries, but that grocery list is much smaller than it yeah. was. Um, and yeah, like, I don't have to think about things like, oh, do I have to like buy this, like one really specific spice or not? I don't know. Um, so yeah, that's great. It's great for me. Nice. I didn't, I never would have thought that HelloFresh and food delivery and food delivery services would be a, would be a, a, a disability life hack, but I guess they that are. Would make sense. Makes sense. Um, what is my other questions that I had? Let me find them. And because I'm so enthralled in what you're saying, I was listening and I lost them. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> there, there they are. So one of the things, you, the last thing you said in the questionnaire that I love so much that I would love for you to talk more about, you said you wouldn't want to be typical for anything. And I, I related to this because I wouldn't want to be I think in my heart of hearts, there are days where I want to be able-bodied. There are certainly days where I want to walk 110 million percent. But there are definitely days where I just love my disability to pieces. And so what is not wanting to be typical? Or yeah, what does that look like for you? And can you elaborate? Yeah. um, So something that emerged for me when I got my official diagnosis, I was like, okay, I was like, this is, this is part of me. Um, And I suspect you can relate to this um, with your disability as well. And I'm like, even though I have definitely internalized, um, you know, a lot of oppressive messages 
um, both, you know, in terms of racism, misogyny, you know, ableism, all kinds of things. It's like I said, I'm like, there's a part of me that's always been aware, like, that's not me. Like, that's not my, my stuff. Um, you know, it's stuff I was taught and I, and I learned and, and, and the pain of that is inside of me, but I'm like, I also really love me. I like, I, I really love myself and I, and I always, always have. Um, like, I remember being like a super little girl before all of that, like garbage stuff kind of got in my brain. Like, I remember how great I used to think I was. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, I'm like, I wouldn't want to be anybody else. Like, if I got to choose who I would be, I would still choose to be me. And there's that, that like super little girl has never fully gone away. Like she's always in there somewhere. And so I think it's really just the reason I love the fact that I have ADHD, even though sometimes it fucking sucks, um, is because I'm like, it's just part of me. Like it's part of who I am. It's so intrinsic to the way that I think. Um, and now that I'm learning, I'm like, yeah, it, it really informs the way that I do things. And I'm like, if I didn't have it, I would be somebody else. And I don't want to be anybody else. Like, I just don't. Um, sometimes, and, and also, um, probably, you know, because I'm a little bit vain, I'm just like, I also kind of really dig being different from other people. And I mean, there are so many people with ADHD, so I'm not like, oh, I'm the only person who's ever had ADHD. It's actually very common, but I'm just like, I even kind of like that term neuroatypical, like being atypical <laughs> makes me feel good. I mean, and um, you are, you are, um, you are a rare breed in that like we rarely hear about black women with ADHD. So in a way you are like, you're, you're on, you're in like a special class of ADHD having people that we don't hear enough about. Yeah, and I, and I kind of dig that. And I mean, the reality is that everybody is atypical. Like when you take all, like everybody's quirks and personalities and identities um, and you put them in this very specific pack, like combination. Yeah, Everybody is like a unique combination of characteristics and personality and body and all of it, right? Um, so in a way, I'm like, it, the most typical thing is to be atypical. But I'm just like, this is the way that I get to be atypical. And I dig it. Like, I like it. I don't want to be like, I just I don't want to be somebody else. I, I just don't. I also um, love that when you were a little black kid, you were like, I love myself. And I'm good. Like, I think that's such an important thing to like, that you said to yourself as a young kid. Because, you know, we hear the other side of the story, which is like, black kids don't they say the opposite of themselves. They say like, you know, I don't love myself. I don't love the color of my skin. I don't love who I am. And you, it sounds like we're just like, yeah, I'm great. I know it. Oh yeah. I mean, until I started kindergarten um, and then the other kids like took me down swiftly. Um, oh, no. But I was just like, oh yeah. Um, because I, like I was such a little, I mean, I don't know. It's I think it's just something that like kids do sometimes. And I wasn't prepared, like in a way, because I was confident. I wasn't prepared because it had never occurred to me that other people wouldn't be into me. That's how so I felt like, when I was in when I was a disabled kid too. Like I my family made it so that my disability was 
you know, just a part of what I did. So I had no idea until I got out there in the world. Oh, kids don't like this. Oh, yeah. And I, I couldn't cope. I was just like, what is happening? What? What? I was like, why don't you like, why didn't you love me? I'm the I'm best. Afraid. What do you mean? Yeah, I was just, I was devastated and so confused. But yeah, like I, and okay, that's a bit of a tangent. But yeah, like my first day of kindergarten, um, you know, I was in the classroom with my peers and I think the teacher, our kindergarten teacher must have let us like draw on the board or whatever. And so I decided that instead of drawing, I was going to write because I knew how to read. I knew how to read and write. And I was like, yeah, I know how to read and write. I'm going to like flex. Um, but I didn't even think of it as a flex. I was just like, I think this is a cool thing I know how to do. And so I wrote Nadine's school on the board because those were two words I knew how to spell really well. And I was like, and now in retrospect, I'm like, yeah, maybe the part where like I flexed real hard and was like, hey kids, check out the way I can like read and write. Can't tell me nothing. I am going to claim the entire school in my name Amazing. in front of y'all. Amazing. I'm like, yeah, maybe they didn't sit so well with the other kids. <laughs> like, I a little bit, I'm like, yeah, maybe I a little bit tried to colonize the school. Um, <laughs> and then all the other, like, little white kids were just like, no, no. that's not your thing. That's our thing. Like, let us show care. you how, let us show you how colonization <laughs> actually works. <laughs> I'm sure that it was not that deep, but. No, they yeah. were four. I'm sure they did. No, that, but that's, that's, uh that's who I was in kindergarten I was like I can read I can write check me out I like I was like I have a red lunch pail while all y'all are here with your yellow Star Wars lunch pails I'm standing out like I just I wanted to be different and I know sometimes kids don't respond don't respond well to that um they don't respond well to the kid who's like on purpose trying to like trying to like distinguish themselves yeah yeah um, my last question that I have for you, because we kind of you kind of mentioned in the questionnaire, and I wanted to touch on it with you. Do you think your ADHD qualifies, or do you feel not qualifies? It feels weird, but do you feel like it means you're a disabled person? I have to say, I hadn't thought about it until you offered me the questionnaire, and I and and you know because you mentioned like we've been trying to schedule this conversation for a while I've had a long time to think about it well it's so funny I'm when we when we first started the conversation I said to you I want to come talk to you about I want you to come on and talk about disability and you the very first time we, we tried to schedule it you said well I think I, I don't think you mentioned your ADHD at that point because you hadn't been diagnosed but you had said like I have allergies to stuff and I was like yeah. okay cool like that's not a disability like, yeah all right we, we can talk about that because sometimes you know they do manifest in other ways and it's like uh, okay but now it's so interesting that like now two years down the line we can have a whole conversation about how maybe you do have disabilities yeah um and I and I have to say like you are definitely someone who's really um been instrumental in helping me broaden my understanding of what a disability is and can be and so I would say that I'm Yes, I was going to say I'm ambivalent about that, but no, I'm not. Yes, I consider it a disability. Um, I know that part of the reason that I struggled um, and was for a long time reluctant to, to name it as a disability is because 
part of the way I thought about disabilities is I sort of thought of the opposite of a disability as being able-bodied. Like, um, oftentimes I hear those two words used as in contrast to each other, like able-bodied and disabled. And I am able-bodied. Um, you know, my physical body, um, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, I'm just middle age. And so, you know, I guess slowly my body is deteriorating. And I mean, some of this stuff will manifest as physical disabilities as if I'm lucky enough to continue to age. Um, yeah, I'm like, well, I'm able-bodied. So I'm like, how can I be able-bodied and disabled at the same time? Because those two things are quote unquote opposite. Yeah. Um, so what I've been thinking about lately um, is I've, it's, I'm really like starting to interrogate using the terms in that way as sort of you're either one or the other. Because I'm like, I'm both. Um, my disability is... Um, it's a mental, dis it's, a, it's a mental disability. It's a cognitive disability. Um, but in the sense that I'm like, well, I'm like, I'm someone who needs accommodations um, in order to fully participate, uh, you know, in life and society. I'm like, I need accommodations. Again, they are accommodations for my mind and the way that I think. Um, I was like, yeah, there are certain things that I can't do or are incredibly difficult for me to do because of the way that my brain works um because I'm like yeah it's actually been really helpful for me to think of my ADHD as a disability um as opposed to a mental illness which is how I often think of my anxiety and depression although they can sort of manifest as disabilities as well in the sense yeah. that like I need accommodations and they can you know, they impact the way I need to do things sometimes. Um, even in the sense that I think thinking of it as a disability has allowed me to be kinder to myself about it um, and kinder to myself in terms of needing those accommodations. And it's helped me be braver in asking for other people to accommodate me good um, i'm so glad that's that's what i yeah. want to hear that's what i was hoping you would say good because you know people um, are so, and you're not the first guest to i basically with every guest i have right now i interrogate like like you know do you think that this is a disability and they will spend 25 minutes telling me well i don't want to take up space there and i don't want to and i'm always like it's okay to take up space there it's all right like you you do it and i always offer like if you need that space, it's there for you. Yeah, and I and I I'm, I definitely that was part of it for me as well. Um, you know, this fear of oh, you know, am I co-opting something that doesn't really apply to me, or you know, being aware that I know that a lot of people when they hear the word disability will immediately assume, you know, yeah, it's somebody who is in a wheelchair or somebody who needs an assistive device or somebody who, yeah, needs like physical accommodations. Um, and I'm like, okay, I can acknowledge that that's true. Um, I can also, it's, it, for me, it's similar to being a queer person, right? I'm like, I can also acknowledge that because I don't present as obviously disabled, that there are certain privileges that I'm probably, I probably, I'm probably given, um, that there are certain forms of ableism that I personally may not have been 
subjected to that other people have, but that doesn't negate the fact that I'm still, I still have a disability. Um, yeah. And it's, it's the same thing, like, you know, being a queer person who's like married to like a cishet guy um, as, as a woman. I'm like, yeah, if I don't tell people I'm queer, people- I don't think I knew until, I don't think I knew- did I know you were queer? I don't think we, I don't think you ever I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we've talked about it. And because um, you said it like, you said it at the top of the, you said it like in the middle of us talking and I, my brain went, did I know this? I don't know if I knew this. Yeah, like I, some people don't know, um, you know, and I identify as queer because I'm like, yeah, the way I experience sexual attraction is not gender-based, like at all, at all, at all, at all. Um, that it I don't want to say it seems weird to me but it's something that I'm like how does that work for you like interesting okay I'm like just I've never experienced sexual attraction in that way um for a long time I was like I would say I was heterosexual because I was taught to understand sexual orientation as who you partner with and I was like well my partner is a man I'm a woman a penis having person usually yeah, yeah he's, he's yeah um, you know, I'm like, he's, he's cis, he's hetero. So I'm like, I guess I'm a heterosexual, um, particularly since we were married and like this for the foreseeable future is the person that I am having sex with. Um, but then later on, I was, when I had a more expansive nuanced understanding of sexual orientation, I was like, oh, I am definitely not heterosexual because <laughs> penises are incidental to me. Masculinity is like completely incidental to me. Um, so yeah i'm like i'm queer like i i and that's the best word i have to describe it because i'm like like i'm not i'm definitely like i'm like i'm not a lesbian i wouldn't quite say i'm bisexual because again it just doesn't feel like a gender like it's not a it's not an inter, it's not attraction rooted in gender that's all i can yeah. say about it yeah yeah um i ha i could sit and talk with you for five more hours but I want to spare the audience our banter forever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. Um, so, so lastly, Dr. Nadine Thornhill, how do the people, how can they get a hold of you? How can they follow you? How can they support you? Okay. Um, so if you want to be like real, if you want like the real easy way, just Google Nadine Thornhill, you'll find me everywhere. Um, but uh, specifically, you can find me on Instagram at Nadine Thornhill. Twitter at Nadine Thornhill. My YouTube channel is Nadine Thornhill. My website is nadinethornhill.com. Um, am I anywhere else? If I'm anywhere else, it's also Nadine Thornhill. Like I keep it real simple. Super simps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I had so much fun finally getting to talk to you again as a friend and as a colleague. Like it's been so Okay, audience. Well, you don't know. The last time we hung out, we did a video for you for Nadine's channel. And we sat in my house and we ate M&Ms until... I was sick. <laughs> we had so much fun. Um, yeah, like I, I just, I always have a blast hanging out with you and talking to you. Um, I've missed you. I cannot wait to see you again in person. I cannot wait to do more stuff with all the stuff you're doing. I'm excited. Yay. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, thank you for being yeah, here. It was so great to have you on. You're wonderful. My show. It was so great to finally make it happen three years later. Um, exactly. But I'm glad we did it. Uh, and Dr. Nadine Thornhill, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye. Sorry, I'm just doing... All right, friends. That's another episode of Disability After Dark. From me, your 
Disabled Daddy, Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow my work, you can follow me on social media on Instagram and Twitter at Andrew Gerza underscore, or you can follow my website, www.andrewgerza.com, to find out more about what I do. And of course, you can follow us on Patreon to get the show one day early and completely ad-free by going to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark, or you can send us an email to disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com and let us know your ideas for an episode, for a minisode, or for a guest spot. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back to shine a bright light on your disabled stories next time.